Today's episode of Transform Your Workplace is brought to you by Zenium HR. Learn more about Zenium's complete HR plus payroll solution at zeniumhr.com. And just this week, we've opened up our annual What People Want From Work survey. This is a survey that's free to participate and you get a free report in the end. And all you have to do is have one representative sign up for the survey. We'll send you the instructions and actually the email comes from me. You'll get instructions, the survey link, an email template. All you have to do is send it out to your employees. And we ask them about 32 questions about what they want out of work. And it gives you a sense for the things that keep them there, the things you can work on as an employer. And we provide all this for free. So go make sure to sign up. You have until August 31st of 2023 to sign up. And that's free. Again, it's free. Go sign up. No excuses. All right. Today's guest is Joe Mole, the author of Employalty. And we're talking about how to retain top talent in today's modern workplace. And he doesn't think it's as complicated as you might think, even though we always talk about the quiet quitting and the great resignation and all those things. But he says it is possible to retain top talent. And all you need is three essential aspects to create a destination workplace. So listen in as we discuss how to retain top talent and his ideas in the book, Employalty. Enjoy the conversation with Joe Mole. Hey, Joe, welcome to Transform Your Workplace. Thanks for coming on the show. Brandon, thanks for having me, man. I'm excited to be here. We're going to talk about your book. It's called Employalty, How to Ignite Commitment and Keep Top Talent in the New Age of Work. What's Employalty? Well, first of all, you get bonus points for getting the pronunciation right. Because, you know, I've had a lot of conversations lately where I've gotten employality and employability, but you nailed it, man. Employalty. So admittedly, we're playing a little bit of a trick on the readers here because you hear that word employalty and you think that probably means employee loyalty, which is what we're striving for. Absolutely. But in the book, we turn the tables a little bit. Employalty is a portmanteau of the words employer loyalty and humanity. So we define employalty as the commitment an employer makes to a more humane employee experience because that's what triggers commitment at work. Now, how do you get the, this level of commitment that you're describing in the book? Yeah, we have a lot of social science research over the years for what leads employees to join an organization, stay long term and give it all they've got. And we've married that together with a lot of research on what's happening in the labor market right now, you know, since the the Great Recession in 2008 and even in a post-COVID world. And we can say with conviction that it becomes much easier to find and keep devoted employees if you win in three specific areas of the employee experience. So in the book, we write about these three areas, we call them ideal job, meaningful work, and great boss. How did you end up landing on those three areas? Was it through just your own research, through studies of other people, maybe conversations with employees and managers and employers? Like, how did you go about coming to those three components? 
Yeah, it's all of the above. So I've spent about 20 years teaching leaders how to be better bosses and how to create the conditions at work that lead people to thrive. And I've always nerded out a little bit on a lot of the psychology around employee engagement and intrinsic motivation. And so I've been using that and teaching that for years. But then when we wanted to write this book for this moment, we analyzed more than 200 studies and articles on why people are leaving jobs or taking new jobs or choosing to stay in roles since the pandemic. And so we put all of that in the hopper. And I think one of the gifts that I have had as a trainer and as a speaker is being able to take complex things and boil them down into simple ideas. And that's really where the word employalty came from, right? I was trying to find a simple way to translate a whole bunch of complex ideas into what we need to get right in order to become what we call a destination workplace. So speak about the complexity of the situation we're in right now is the last couple of years, 2021, 2022, great resignation, quiet quitting, whatever you want to call it, right? Great reshuffle. I think employees have been saying they've been working more than ever. They're burned out. They're stressed out. I imagine this hurts commitment to an organization. So what, what have we seen the last couple of years? Yeah, so we know and we have data that tells us that this concept of what we keep calling the great resignation didn't start two or three years ago. It actually started about 13 years ago. So since 2009, we have seen an uptick every single year in the number of Americans who have voluntarily quit their jobs, not firings, not retirements, but people of prime working age who have left a job. And when you look at the hiring data, we know that there has been more hiring than quitting in every industry category going back more than a decade. So people aren't quitting, they're switching. The remarkable thing, Brandon, is that this number has steadily ticked up every single year for the past 13 years. So I'm not trying to do a data dump here on your show, but for example, we know that in 2009, about 23 million Americans voluntarily quit their jobs. Last year, at the end of 2022, it was almost 51 million Americans. So the number has more than doubled. And when you look at that same period of time, we see burnout at an all-time high in the workplace. We see wages that were completely stagnant and have been for decades. And we see workloads exploding. Then a pandemic arrives, and it forces people to recalibrate and reimagine the, the way that work fits into their lives. So all of these things are coming together at this moment right now to create this era where people are recalibrating how work fits into their lives and the kind of, of work that they want to do. So you wrote a, a really funny tidbit, which is on the other side of this. So you're talking about this is what the employees are doing. They're switching jobs because they're burned out. And then you said the statement that no one wants to work anymore exists as one of the most tired, inaccurate generational tropes in human history. So where does that statement come from? Because I hear people say that all the time, like nobody wants to work anymore. But is that even true? Yeah. And so we can answer this with numbers and we can answer this anecdotally and we do it both ways in the book. So for example, I often tell the story when I'm doing keynotes about a local business owner in my community who has spent the past two years posting in our community Facebook group about his need to, to fill open positions. And he always posts them the same way, Brandon. He writes, help me find good people. No one wants to work. And then he posts the hours and the pay and they're terrible. And so it's been a really interesting thing to watch members of the community come back and say, hold on, time out. It's not that no one wants to work. It's that no one wants to work for you. And when we turn the mirror inward and we say, hey, people don't want to take our jobs. Is the problem the people? 
Or is the problem the jobs? The numbers tell us that the problem's the jobs. There is not this mass of people who have chosen to sit on the sidelines, right? The, the, the narrative of the invisible group of people who just got lazy is absolutely false. When we were writing this book, we found a researcher out of Canada who found instances of this sentiment, no one wants to work, going back in North American newspapers more than 120 years. So it is a generational trope. What we do know is that we have a plethora of open jobs in our economy right now. We have 10 million unfilled jobs in the United States. If you took every unemployed person in the U.S. right now and put them in a job, we still have 5 million unfilled jobs tomorrow. So there are simply not enough people to do all the work that we're adding to our economy. So what we say in the book is that business owners and leaders need to embrace a mindset shift. There is no staffing shortage. There's a great jobs shortage. When employers become a destination workplace and give employees their ideal job doing meaningful work for a great boss, they end up providing great jobs that people want to be a part of. So if the issue is the way the job is designed and it's not an ideal job, what are the core components to that ideal job you're talking about? Yeah. So that first factor, ideal job, is really made up of my compensation, my workload, and flexibility. So compensation exists on a continuum of generosity. And it is true that the more generous our compensation, the more impact it has on our willingness to join and our willingness to stay. Workload is about whether I find my workload manageable or is it overwhelming. And flexibility is about whether I get some choice around where, when, and how I work. And flexibility is not just remote work, right? We sometimes falsely equate the two, but remote work is just one kind of flexibility. So maybe I have some influence over my start time or my shift length or the days that I work or who I work with or the locations where I work. We know that if we give employees some influence there, it ups commitment. That's that ideal job factor. When it comes to compensation, what's your reaction when you see an HR person or an employer posting a job without a range of salary? No salary transparency. I feel bad for the organization because they are not going to get the volume of applicants that they potentially could. If you're not sharing something, the message is you're hiding something. If your salary was competitive, if your salary was something upon which you know you have a competitive advantage, you'd be shouting it from the rooftops. How do we, like in an ideal job, obviously like workload can be an issue. A lot of people are saying that like they're connected more than ever. They're the, it's just unrealistic expectations when it comes to the, to the work that's on their desk. And you think with like all the technology that's coming out and all the tools, you think it would, we'd be able to streamline some of that. But how do employers go about handling this workload issue so that it becomes an ideal job that people would actually want to take? Yeah, you see a lot of employers right now really evaluating their expectations of what one person can reasonably accomplish in a given workday. I know a lot of employers are finally admitting that, hey, we've spent a lot of years operating at a minimum staffing threshold, right? What is the minimum number of people we can get by with? And that's great in terms of your balance sheet. But as soon as somebody needs to take a day off or get sick or somebody leaves for a new opportunity, you've got chaos and you've got workloads that then become absolutely overwhelming for us others who stay. And so we know that where organizations are staffing up a little bit to disperse workloads across more people in the organization, the quality of life for everybody goes up and then retention goes up. One of the other more popular ways that organizations are managing workloads are with the rise of four-day work weeks. There are pilot programs and trials that have been taking place all over the globe for years. We're consistently seeing that in those pilot programs and trials, you can be as productive, if not more productive, in 
four days a week if you get a couple of things right. If you put some some parameters in place around hours and outcomes and you get efficient with time. And we know that when you give a full day back to people's lives, you dramatically enhance their quality of life. And here again, you create a competitive advantage for yourself as an employer. So employers who might be listening to this thinking like, okay, give my employees four-day work week, hire more people to offload the work, have more people, rising inflation, I've got to pay people more. Where's this money come from? I think that's where the resistance with any of these ideas come from is that like, well, you're going to eat into the margins we have and there's already slim. So what's the solution here? Well, you can look at this a couple different ways. And and we actually lay out all of the capitalistic reasons for why creating a more humane employee experience is the way to go in this new age of work. But for example, we know that people generally do a great job when they believe they have a great job. So if you create these conditions at work and you see commitment levels go up, guess what? Every metric you care about in your organization goes up. Quality, service, safety, reputation, revenue. You end up creating an ecosystem where you're you're delivering a superior product and service. And so the numbers that you care about on the bottom line should move in a positive direction. But it's not only that, Brandon. There are so many hidden costs to churn, to turnover, to, to retention issues. Anybody listening to this show who has been in the HR world for more than 10 minutes has heard all of the studies that tell us it takes between one half to five times a person's salary to replace them in an organization. When you factor in productivity, the cost to recruit, rehire, retrain, all of those compile as well. But not only that, you're actually going to save time recruiting into your organization if you elevate in these areas because your employees become your best recruiters. They go out and find quality people and say, hey, you should come work here too. They treat us pretty well and we're doing great work. And so you, you save costs across the board. Now, at the same time, let's acknowledge that the wages piece here is a harsh reality for a lot of folks. There are a lot of organizations that are having to raise wages to make up for decades of having been behind. And most of the organizations that are doing it are having to find that money in one of three places, shareholder revenue, executive salary, or new and expanded revenue streams. And that's the nature of where we're at today. Until two years ago, Brandon, the the average salary for the median U.S. worker had moved 10% since 1979. But cost of living had quadrupled. And so the wages reckoning that's taking place right now is not a revolution. It is a making up of the sins that have been in place for years. One of the components to the commitment at work is meaningful work. I think this is one of the most tricky ones because on the surface, some jobs don't have a lot of purpose or meaning behind them unless an employer is able to make that connection to the overarching mission or purpose. So how how do employers go about instilling purpose in all employees' work? Yeah, so the concept of meaningful work has actually been studied by social sciences researchers going back since the 70s. And there are a number of things that lead people to believe that their work is meaningful. The three that we point to in the book and that keep showing up again in research and and in the studies that are being done about why people are leaving jobs are what we call purpose, strengths, and belonging. So purpose. Do I believe my work matters? Do I believe it makes a difference? Strengths. Do I do work that aligns with my unique talents and gifts? And then belonging. Am I an accepted and celebrated member of a team? So we've all heard the data for years, for example, that 
people will forego a new opportunity to go work someplace else sometimes simply because they like the people that they work with, that they will not want to leave that group. That's a piece of belonging, right? Belonging starts with connection and camaraderie, but it actually evolves to include diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? We know that inclusion is a core component of meaningful work. And not only that, we know that exclusion actually is cancerous to an organization. When you have employers and frontline leaders who spend time and effort nurturing purpose, strengths, and belonging, people find their work fulfilling and they want to stay and do a, be a part of it. You know, what's interesting about that is you were talking about like employees who feel belonging, they feel purpose in their work. They then talk about it with their, their friends, their family, the reputation of the organization and the culture goes beyond the walls. And that's where like, you might have organic interest and in people come to work for you. And that's something special. What employers have you seen like really do this well? Uh, I don't know if you have any interesting examples of people who've done this well, that always have people knocking on the door to try to come work for them. But that's, that's ultimately where employers probably want to be. One of the things that we tried to do with this book was showcase a whole range of real world employers. You know, a lot of business books these days rely on a couple of the same big companies. And so you read a lot of stories about Apple and Southwest and Patagonia, and those are great companies. But we wanted to talk about some smaller kinds of businesses that most Americans work for. So we wrote about nonprofits. We wrote about hospitals. We wrote about an LED lighting company in Oklahoma. And there was one organization that we wrote about. About. It's a software company and a recruiting firm that works with people who work in the engineering space. And they've done a lot of really interesting things in their organization to enhance belonging because they actually have employees all over the globe. So they've really gone all in on what are called ERGs or employee resource groups, which are affinity groups for people who have some kind of human difference in common. So one of their ERGs is a women in tech group. And one of their ERGs is for members of the LGBTQIA community. And one of their ERGs is for people with families. And so they are constantly looking at how do we make sure this is a welcoming and safe place to work for people from these groups that at times can be marginalized. And they're also invested in doing education around the organization for what it means to be a member of one of those groups. Just driving those ongoing conversations can have a powerful impact on belonging, but feeling cared about in the way that goes beyond just the tasks and duties of my job, right, as a, as a human being, actually makes me tell others that this is a pretty great place to work. You had a really interesting example. This is more on the attraction of people who might run across a job posting. But you had an example, uh, Jessica Young, I believe her name was, out of, I think it was the medical industry. But you shared an example of how they reframed the job posting. Because most job postings, as we know, they're, they're terrible. They're not appealing. They're boring. They don't really tell me what the job entails. Share with listeners how Jessica reframed the job posting and then had a ton of applicants as a result of it. You know, sometimes the universe sends you a gift. And I was in the throes of writing this book and I traveled out west to do a keynote at a large healthcare conference. And I was waiting in the wings to go do my program. And right ahead of me, they were doing these micro presentations from, this was a, a medical healthcare conference, from people from these different clinics from all across the country where they had created innovation. And speaking right before me was Jessica. And she went and spent about 10 minutes walking everybody in the room through how they had been struggling to fill these team lead and front desk 
desk positions in their outpatient clinics. And anybody listening to this who works in that environment knows those are critical roles and they are tough to fill because they tend to be a little bit lower in wages. And so they basically figured out that they needed to blow up their job description. As she's talking about this on stage, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, all the hallmarks of employalty are present in this story. I need to meet this person. I need to interview her. Really hope she'll let me share her story. And of course, she couldn't have been more helpful, you know, more open to allowing others to learn from their process. The long and short of it, Brandon, is they looked at their job description and said, we don't need any of this crap. Why are we telling people that they need to have a high school diploma? Why are we saying you need to know Microsoft Office? Why are we saying that you need to have customer service skills? We just need you to want to work in healthcare. We can teach you everything else. So they created this cohort program and the posting for the job, and I, I don't have it memorized, but it's really something to the effect of if you want to work in healthcare and care about people, apply now, we will train you. Uh, and we have yes, the actual, it was, it was basically that I remember it because I was just looking at it. Yeah. We have the word for word description in there and it blew up their postings and they got way more applicants. But the secret here isn't just that they changed the wording of the description. It's that they were open to looking differently at who could do this work and they made a commitment to those people to give them what they needed to be successful. So they they did a paid training program. They created a cohort. They gave them opportunities to shadow and to explore. They gave them some influence over selecting the departments they would end up in. That is really part and parcel of what it means to care about the humanity of an employee and not treat people as a commodity. Well, look at it these two different ways. So in, in that case, they're like, as an employee or a, a candidate looking at that job posting, you're like, wow, they're, they actually care about career development. They're going to train me on, I don't have any of these skills maybe right now, I, but I care about the mission of this healthcare facility, hospital, whatever it may be. And I'm going to have a, maybe a career here versus most would be like, you need a master's degree. And by the way, you're going to make 19 bucks an hour. Who wants to go work there? That's right. I just had this conversation the other day with another organization I was speaking to. Uh, we had seen a posting online from a, a local outpatient medical group who said, we need medical assistance, $14 an hour, must be able to draw blood, healthcare and paid vacation after one year of service. And it's a fantasy, you know, because... Of course, I'm not going to need a day off or any health care for a year. And of course, I'll come work for you as a specialist, right, who can draw blood for barely the minimum wage. That is a poverty wage in this world now when you look at the numbers. And so, so much of the recalibration that needs to take place for people who are struggling to find and keep devoted employees is between their ears. It's around their beliefs, around what people need to survive and want to be great. So this last component to the commitment at work is about great boss. So what's funny is you go to this quote that says nearly nine out of 10 bosses believe they're leading well, but fewer than two out of 10 employees say they are. I don't know where that data comes from. You've done a ton of research, so you must know where that came from or maybe that came from you. But um, what are employees saying about the poor bosses? Because the bosses think they're good. Employees don't think they are. Right. And that, yeah, that data is well sourced. And, you know, a lot of this research in recent years has been driven by some of the, the bigger engagement and consulting firms. And uh, Gallup has been doing incredible research for a number of years. McKinsey in recent years has really been publishing a lot around workforce and retention that's been really valuable. But we do see this disconnect. We know when you ask bosses, for example, why did that employee quit? More than 80% of the time, the number one reason bosses give is pay. And then when you ask people why they left, they only say pay less than 25% of the time. 
So again, there, there is a disconnect. So we know, and this is what we write about in the book, this great boss factor is made up of three dimensions. We call them trust, coaching, and advocacy. So do I grant trust and do I earn trust as a supervisor? Do I engage in coaching, which is not giving advice, it's not telling people what to do, it's asking open-ended questions in the right order to mine people for their ideas, for their insights, for their creativity. This is a really powerful interaction that actually gets to many of the other things that we've been talking about here, like leading people to feel like they have purpose, for example. And then the third dimension of great boss is what we call advocacy which is the catch-all word that we're using to talk about acting in the best interests of another human being. So if I'm an advocate for my direct reports, I don't just care about the duties of their job. I care about who they are outside of work. I at least know something about their story. I don't just care about their employment with us. I care about their long-term career and whether that may or may not include us. And so we hear stories and have for years of people feeling like they're treated like a, a cog in a machine, of hearing stories that, you know, my boss doesn't respect me, takes credit for all the work, gives us all the blame for the mistakes that we made, is creating and fostering a toxic workplace. Employees direct supervisor is the single most influential factor on the employee experience and on commitment. It's why everything we do from a training and development perspective is anchored underneath our boss better brand, right? I've kind of become known as the boss better guy because commitment comes from better bosses, right? We have data that tells us that 75% of people who leave a job indicate that their boss is part or all of the reason why. So it, it has been said, and it is true that people don't quit their jobs, they quit their bosses. And so that's the one thing that we have to get right if we want to get better at finding and keeping great people. What kind of behaviors do the great bosses have that you've seen? Well, my favorite in terms of really centering it around how people show up differently is asking leaders to respond with curiosity over judgment. So for example, if I have an employee who is showing up in a way that I find troubling, right? Maybe I've got a performance issue. Maybe somebody is starting to, as my mom would say, flake off at work. Sometimes in our mind, we can leap to a judgment. Oh, they must have stopped caring or, you know, maybe that person's lazy. But when we lead with curiosity first, it forces us to ask ourselves, what would make a good person act this way? What questions do I need to ask to better understand what's going on with them? And so you engage in all of the habits, routines, routines and behaviors that are required to lead with curiosity. I need to pull that person aside. I need to ask some open-ended questions. I need to reserve judgment and make sure that everything from the affect of my face and my voice are neutral and so that I can better understand who this person is and what they're going through. I need to create an environment where they're comfortable telling me. And so that's just one set of behaviors that we know is important. You know, we could talk about boss behaviors for a whole other three or four episodes of your show here around leading with strengths and creating belonging and nurturing trust, for example. But when we boil it down to those sets of experiences, trust, coaching, and advocacy, it gives us the right things to focus on. I think for most leaders, they've managed too much, like the, the micromanaging behavior versus the coaching behavior. That's a big shift. What kind of resources or tools would you suggest giving managers to make that shift to become more of a coach, ask open-ended questions? Because it is a skill set that is, it needs to be learned. 
And when it's a skill, it requires training and practice. And so there are a whole host of experts and providers out there in the world who can come into an organization and teach leaders how to have coaching conversations. And, you know, there is no one right model. What is right to do is create time and space for the learning. And so uh, where we see organizations dedicate themselves to enhancing the coaching skills of their leaders, we see improvement in retention and engagement. At the same time, here's the other interesting thing. A couple of years ago, the experts at Gallup released some research and ended up putting it into a book called It's the Manager. And they found that organizations that have ultra high levels of engagement, the leaders in these organizations have some very specific things in common. And one of them is that they gather regularly with other managers. They are part of a peer group of managers, which tells us that really the most valuable investment that we can make to the development of leaders is time, is giving them time to gather with their peers, to talk through their challenges, to share advice, to mentor one another. Because if I'm struggling to overcome a performance issue that someone has in my workplace, Going to my peer group and being able to say, have you ever had this before? How should I approach this conversation? What, what do I not know that maybe I should be looking for? All of that makes us better and keeps us from leaping to those judgmental conclusions that can end up doing harm to that relationship and that person's employment. Yeah, well said. Joe, this has been a really fun discussion. Uh, what else do you want to say about employability? You know, at this moment, there is so much taking place out in the labor market around why people will take a job, stay long term or not. And I really do think it comes back to something that I said earlier, which is that people generally do a great job when they believe they have a great job. What we have to understand is happening right now is that people are upgrading. They're seeking out upgrades to their quality of life. And for some people, that's better pay or a better commute or a better boss or a more flexible schedule. But by and large, all of these upgrades are about quality of life. It will become much easier for your organization to find and keep devoted employees if you decide to be the upgrade. We wrote this book to give you the blueprint for doing just that. Joe, thanks for coming on the podcast. Where can people connect with you? What's the best way? Oh, thanks for asking, man. I am over at joemull.com, J-O-E-M-U-L-L.com. And the book is Employalty, E-M-P, Loyalty. And you can order it wherever you like to get your books. My guest today has been Joe Mole. Joe, thanks for coming on the podcast. Brandon, thanks for having me, man. Good talk. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed are the guest's own and do not represent the views, thoughts, and opinions of Zenium HR or the host, Brandon Laws. The material and information presented on Transform Your Workplace is for general information and educational purposes only. Zenium HR or the host, Brandon Laws, does not necessarily endorse any guest, their business, or any organization they represent. Discretion is advised. Please work with a trusted advisor to find a custom approach that fits your organization's needs.